So um, a couple of weeks back, Shabbat Shalom, first of all. I'm so glad that y'all are here tonight. Um, a, a couple of weeks back, I uh, asked Pastor Paul, is there, is there a week during this month? It's super hot right now. I'm going to slide back this way maybe. Is there a week this month, in, in the month of August or in September, that you would like for me to, uh, to teach? And what felt like kind of randomly, he threw out two dates. Like, how about, oh, I don't know, August 25th. Okay, so I just grabbed my phone. I put it on my calendar Locked and loaded. Once it's on the calendar, it's fine. You know, and let that be a lesson too. If you ever ask me about something and I don't put it on a calendar, I will I will completely forget it. Thank you, Miss Betty. So, um, so I, I put it in there, and then um, not this week that we are finishing, but the previous week, Pastor Paul sends me a message and says, "Hey, I'm really curious to see." how you're going to handle this particular Torah portion. So for those of you that, that don't know, I, I do work for the school district, and this is like, I, I started back on July 16th, and like from July 16th until the kids came back to school this past Monday, because of what I do in, in the district and our department that I work in, it's like, it's a dead sprint, like every day. It starts, and of course, and I coach cross country as well, and so uh, so I'm up at the school at 6.15 every morning for the girls to get their run in, and then I start my work day, and, and it's just full blast till 5 or 5.30 most days, and it's just, just, just fast, fast-paced all the time. So he sends me this message, just, hey, I'm, I'm just curious about how you're going to handle this particular Torah portion. When I get to the message, when I see it, I start getting that, that sweat, and my heart rate starts doing like, that's not this week, is it? And then, but it, his message didn't just stop with that. He went into kind of some details about, I'm interested to see how you're going to address this and this and this. And like, I started feeling anxiety like you wouldn't believe. And so about eight o'clock or so that night, I messaged him back. I'm like, hey, uh, appreciate the information. That's not this week, is it? That's Because I had on my calendar the 25th. And he's like, no, 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 you're good. But I just, you know, just so you know. So how many of you, like, spent time in the Torah portion this week? I'm, I'm not shaming anybody. I just want to know, like, did you get in there? Um, what a beating, right? <laughs> so this seems to happen, like, there's this pattern. He's like, hey, by the way, I got to do this wedding on this Saturday. Could you preach for me? Or I'm going to be in Colorado for a couple of weeks. Could you do this? Have y'all noticed the trend of the portions that I've started that I've been having to unpack over the last six or eight months. Um, there are, the Talmud says that there's 613 laws in the Torah, right? 74 of those are in this portion that we did this week. 74 in like four and a half chapters-ish, roundabout. So that's where all of this started for me with this panic of like, I, I'm going to have to spend some time in this. And, and it is, like it's a difficult portion because of all of the do's and don't do's that are found in there. And not just that, but like the, it's heavy. Like there's, there's, there's heavy stuff there. This is definitely one of those times where when you do, things kind of the way that we've, we do things as a church, like we've obviously been going through um, over, over the course of this year, we've been going through and doing the weekly Torah portion. And even before that, where we would go and, and, and teach verse by verse through whole books of the Bible, what we always say about that is it, it forces you to talk about things that, like when you're just, you know, you're doing those topical sermon series, you don't choose those texts to talk about. You just... You don't. So this one was full of those kinds of things that you just don't necessarily want to want to choose for yourself. So um, as we get into this, obviously I'm not going to cover all of the 74 laws. So you're welcome. Like we're just not going to do that tonight. Um, but there are there are three different 
big pieces in this that I do want us to spend some time in tonight. I, I provided some resources for you um, to be able to, it almost serves as, as a little bit of a summary um, as it walks through each one of those. It shows you, you can see like midway through the first page and then onto the second page, uh, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth, those different um, aliyahs, which is uh, Hebrew for elevation or to go up but it's basically these portions that someone would, would go to take up um, and, to, and to elevate into. Uh, Moses addresses life in, uh, in the promised land by providing further laws uh, to enforce regarding civil life in Israel, such as ethical warfare, family life, uh, burial of the deceased, property laws, humane treatment of animals, fair labor practice, honest economic transactions. Those are some of like the big things that are covered in this. And that's really important. Like it's, under, it's, it's important for us to understand that these are the types of things that Moses is trying to unpack for the people as they get ready to, to possess the land, that there's a certain way that life works best. And if we do it this, this way, that honors Yahovah and he's going to, to bless us inside the land that we're, that we're going to possess. Um, I did provide uh, up at the top, you'll see a shortened link that I put there um, that shows, I found this really great resource that you can go to, and it shows listed with the verse and reference for all 613 of those laws. I found it fascinating. I probably spent more time in that uh, maybe than I should have this week, but it really was good to see that. It's good to see. So what we talk about here at Four Winds Church is that we believe the whole of the Bible to be for us, that, that God put it there for a reason and that it's all applicable where it's appropriate, right? And so that's what we talk about. So those things are not there just for us to gloss over and, and like, well, we've got Yeshua, so it's fine, right? We, we recognize that those things were put there for a purpose or there for a reason. So I provided that resource for you that you can go back and and look at another, another time. Um, I'm really, really grateful for the Word of God this week. Um, through this Torah portion, the, the directions that that took me uh, in my personal study um, and the things that I, that I learned, but, but really, like, it's the reflection time in that. Uh, um, the thing that I love so much about preaching and teaching the Scriptures is it forces you to a depth that um, sometimes it's hard to prioritize the time to do that when I'm not doing this. Does that make sense? Like, I, I, this is such a huge, 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 huge honor to be able to stand before people and open the scriptures and teach it. And it's something that I've never, ever taken lightly, and, and I never will take it lightly. And the scriptures deserve the reverence of my time, and you deserve that as well. So I don't ever want to stand up in front of you and, and shoot from the hip, so to speak. I, I want to invest that time because it's, it's worth it. Like the scriptures are, are worth that. And so when, when you're preparing to teach and to preach, you have to invest that time. But what it does is it forces me into this point of, of, of reflection. And reflection is where you learn, right? Like you can go and hear things, but until you take the time to reflect on it, you did, did you really learn anything? Did you do anything with the things that you, that you learned? So it, it forces me into that. And, um, and so I'm just, I'm so grateful for the scriptures this week and, uh, and to be able to get into this. And we're gonna try to do it um, to, to kind of do service to the 74 laws that, that, are, that are given in this Torah. But to, in doing so, I want to make sure that we make much of Yeshua and we make much of Yahovah, our God. That, that's the purpose. And so that's what I want us to do tonight. But what I'm going to do, though, is I'm going to chase it down from the end the tour. I want to start at the at the back part of of this week's portion in Deuteronomy 25. Then we're going to go back into 21 and and kind of 
we're going to go at it a little bit backwards. If there's a reason, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to tie it all together. So um, in Deuteronomy 25, beginning in verse 17, it says, remember that Amalek did, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on your way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who are lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given the rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. We pray that Yahuwah will bless the reading of his word tonight. So this is what I found really fascinating with those 613 mitzvahs that are given in, in the Torah, two of those are directly related to the Amalekites. There are two different commandments, mitzvahs that are given directly about, one of them is don't forget to blot them out. The other one is to remember to obliterate them. Okay. It's a big deal. This group of people, it's a big deal. So what I, I want to throw back a little bit so that we know who the Amalekites are by drawing back to who Amalek was. So Amalek was the great-grandson of Esau. Do you remember who Esau was? Esau is Jacob's brother, remember? And so Jacob is the one that inherited, that, that got the blessing of the inheritance from his father, and Esau's hatred towards his brother just, it just went out of control on him. Amalek grew up in Esau's house, was raised in Esau's house. Who did Jacob become? Israel. So this hatred of the Amalekites of Israel goes back to before Amalek was born. But he was indoctrinated in this as he came up. So what Moses is reminding the people of in chapter 25 is, don't forget the Amalekites. So this group of people that, that became a, a nation settled in the valley of the Negev, which is just south of where the promised land was. And so they were in this area. What happened was when, when Israel came out of Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea, and it's during that time, the first time that Moses made water come from the rock. Remember, they were, they were destitute. They were tired. They were like, why'd you bring us into the wilderness to die? And, and they're, they're weak and they're weary. And Moses strikes a rock and the water comes out and they continue on their path. Right after that is when the Amalekites kind of did a little bit of a, it's, it's part of warfare, but basically they flanked the nation of Israel. Now, why do you flank the nation of Israel? What did he say here in this text? Who's back there? What Moses says, remember how they cut off your tail? Who's back at the back? The weak, the tired, the ones who are lagging at the back. That's where they attacked. They preyed on the weak. Now, this was one of those completely like out of nowhere kind of thing. They didn't really know that they were there. They had no warrant. They, did, they were not inoffensive in any way. They were traveling. The Amalekites came and brought it to them. And it ticked Yahovah off. Now, it goes from there. So I, I put this line here and... and, and I'm going, to draw some, I'm going to draw a line through history real quick for you. 
So we, we start with Amalek, and then we're going to go to Agog, I believe is how we're going to pronounce that. That's how I'm going to do it tonight, Agog. So uh, we talked about Amalek, that's, the, that's Esau's grandson. Um, in Exodus chapter 17, it says, The Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. So again, like write it down and then tell Joshua. Why? Why are we telling Joshua? Joshua's going to take them in, right? And what he said over and what he, what he says several times is, do not forget about the uh, Amalekites and you're to obliterate them. Like wipe them out. Do away with them. Don't leave anything behind. So write this down and then recite it to Joshua because Joshua's going to be the one that takes them into the promised land. That I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. That's important, okay? So Amalek comes from, is a direct descendant of Esau, who is a brother of Jacob. Jacob becomes Israel, right? So then if we roll this thing out a little ways, we're going to, we're going to hear in 1 Samuel chapter 15 about this guy named Agog who was the king of the Amalekites, okay? Agog was the king of the Amalekites. Now, this story, you might remember this story. Um, did any of y'all watch that series? I think it was called The Bible that came on maybe the History Channel. You can find it on Netflix now, and it was basically like this really dramatized, really well done, like kind of telling of the scriptures. I remember we watched some of it. I remember watching it this night when it talked about this story uh, with Samuel and, and King Saul and this interaction that happened. I don't know why that stuck out in my head, but it did. So, um, so in this, this is where Yahovah sends King uh, Saul is, is, the, is the king right now. He's sending him into battle, and he tells them they're going to wage war against the Amalekites. And he tells them, wipe them out. Don't leave anybody behind. What does Saul do? He takes the best of the herds. Was he told to take the best of the herds? Nope. He took the best of the herds, and then he took captive the king. So Yahavah speaks to Samuel and says, go get him. So Samuel goes. Samuel walks up into this, this interaction with King Saul and he goes, what is that bleeding of sheep in my ears? At that point, if I'm King Saul, I'm going, uh-oh. Because he... He had to have known, like he did not. And what, do, you, do you know what Saul's response to that was? We took the best of the herds, why? To make a sacrifice to God. Uh-oh, what did he tell him to do though? Where do you make the sacrifices? In the temple. You, like you don't just make sacrifices. And that goes back to that same thing that he, he taught. That's, that's in, that's one of the one, 613 Laws, it's there. You don't sacrifice outside of what I told you to do. And then Samuel tells him, he's not honored in your sacrifices. He doesn't need your sacrifices, but what does he desire? Obedience. He doesn't, he doesn't desire your sacrifices. He doesn't need your sacrifices. He needs your obedience. And then he basically calls him out. Like, what's this guy doing over here? What were you told to do? All of this ultimately led to Samuel killing the king, and Saul being taken out of the throne. And who was brought in? King David was, was ushered into the kingdom right after that, right after that happened. Agog, king of the Amalekites. So he was brought in. How he became royalty in this, in this nation, I don't know. But this is the nation that came about from the grandson of Esau, okay? All right, 
We're going to roll it forward a little bit more into Esther chapter 3. And I, and I want to tell you just kind of as maybe something to jot down, go back and read the entire book of Esther. Read the whole thing. What an incredible story. Abs- I mean, of, of Yahuwah handpicking someone, bringing them to the place where he needed. Why? For such a time as this. Like, that's the thing that we take out of the book of Esther. Maybe, Mordecai says, maybe he put you in this position for such a time as this, because she was the one that had to go into the king's court and petition on behalf of the Jewish people. And she said, but if I'm not summoned, if the king doesn't call for me, I don't have the right to walk into his court. Mordecai says, but maybe, maybe he put you there for such a time as this. So, but what that was, like what wraps around that story, we pull that part out and we're like, yes, like maybe that's me. Maybe, maybe there's a time that, you know, we talked about Joshua when he was commissioned and when, when like Yahuwah said, Joshua's my man, that's the one. And we talked about how like, how would it feel to know that your name was on the lips of God Almighty? And, that's, and that was Esther as well. Like, that's the one that, that's going to take over the throne. That's the one that's going to be the, the queen of this, this entire territory. So we take that out and we go, maybe it's me. Maybe, it, maybe there's going to be a time and like, he's going he's gonna to call me and I'm going to hear it. I'm going to know and I'm going to step into something out of sheer obedience, and, and I will be able to see the results of that. So we, can, we connect to Esther's story because of that. But what's wrapped around the story of Esther of that for such a time as this moment is this guy named Haman was promoted basically to like the second in command in this territory, in this nation. And Haman hated the Jews. Do you know what they called Haman? He was called Haman the Agagite. Agagite? Agagite. Where do you think the Agagites came from? Agak. Agak, which came from the Amalekites. He was Haman the Agagite that was promoted into second in command. And he went directly to the king. You'll read this in Esther. He went directly to the king and he said, there's people who are scattered among your province who don't live by your authority. They're different than everyone else. So I want you to commission me to, to allow people to go, and the word that's used, what, what he says is, I want them to destroy, kill, and annihilate the Jews. And he was able to convince the king that that's what he needed to do because he played it back to, they don't follow your authority. They don't bow to you. So allow me to go commission people to hire hitmen is basically what he was doing. They were going to pay him 10,000 whatevers to kill Jews. He wanted them destroyed, killed, annihilated. Does that sound like anyone else in our history? Okay, so... Mordecai knows this. Mordecai was his target. Mordecai is the reason that Haman decided we're going to wipe them all out because he witnessed Mordecai not giving reverence to the king. So then Mordecai hears about the plan to completely wipe out every Jew from the province. And he goes to Esther, who he raised. Esther is like his cousin, but Esther's parents both died and Mordecai raised her. Now she's the queen. So he goes to her and says, you're going to have to go petition the king. And she says, he didn't call for me. 
If I go, he could kill me. Maybe, maybe this is why, maybe this is why Yahovah put you in this position. She had favor with the king. The king listened to her. The king, she let him know ultimately what that, what that guy's plan was and how he was angling this. And then ultimately she saved the rest of the Jews in the, in the area. It's an incredible story. I highly encourage you to go back and read. I think it's 12 chapters or something like that. So good, so rich. Okay, so then the fourth piece of this, I wanted to tie this back to none other than Adolf Hitler. Now, Hitler held a worldview that all of the global issues that we have were a direct cause of the Jews. He basically, like you have to remember, like back in history when you took this stuff, when you learned this stuff, you have to remember that Hitler thought he was doing what was right. Do you remember that? He thought he was doing what was right. And I put a quote in here from this historian named uh, Timothy Snyder, and I'm just going to read it. And I want you to just like read along with me, but I, I want you to like, Put your, put your brain in this. Like, let's invest something in this because I want you to think it through. So what Hitler does is he inverts. He reverses the whole way we think about ethics and for that matter, the whole way we think about science. What Hitler says is that abstract thought, whether it's normative or whether it's scientific, is inherently Jewish. Any kind of abstract thinking is inherently Jewish. There is, in fact, no way of thinking about the world, says Hitler, which allows us to see human beings as human beings. Any idea which allows us to see, other, see each other as human beings, whether it's a social contract, whether it's a legal contract, whether it's working class solidarity, whether it's Christianity, all these ideas come from Jews. And so for people to be people, for people to return to their essence, for them to represent their race as Hitler sees things, you have to strip away all those ideas. And the only way to strip away all those ideas is to eradicate the Jews. And if you eradicate the Jews, then the world snaps back into what Hitler sees as primeval, correct state. Races struggle against each other, kill each other, starve each other to death, and try to take land. In Hitler's worldview, that's what the human race was supposed to do. Like, you race to power, you overtake, that's what it's about. And in his perspective, the issue was that, 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 that the Jewish mindset, that, that Hebrew way of doing life had brought all of this complication in it because people were trying to do good for each other. And that that was the problem. What, what is this Torah portion about? Flip back to, that, to the first page of the notes. Moses is going to put together in this portion, he's going to ha- let, allow them to get further understanding on, regarding civil life in Israel Things such as ethical warfare. Ethical warfare. N- not, what is the thing about all is fair and love and war, like whatever goes? No, like there's a way to do this. Family life. There's a way to interact with those in your family that's right. Burial of the deceased. Property laws, rise to power and take everything. No, prop, there's, there's, some, there's some way. Humane treatment of animals, fair labor practice, honest economic transactions. Those are things, those were themes of this Torah portion. And according to Hitler, that's the problem. There's a bunch of people teaching that there's a way of doing life where you where you're kind to each other and and like morally and ethically you treat each other good and that's the problem. 
this historian drew ties and claims that Hitler got a great deal of his ideology from studying historian historical writings on Haman and the Amalekites. Do you know what those, those people did historically? They preyed on the weak. They went and found the ones that fell off of the back and they, they, they raised to a point of dominance over them until they, until they broke the whole system apart. If you prey on the weak and the ones that are scattered or are are separated in some way, if you can prey on them, then you can become more powerful. And the more powerful you become, then you can start overtaking the others. Hitler's ideology was there's this race of people that have been scattered. There are people that are not really a people. So if we can target and we can go after those then we can gain all the power. It's the same strategy that the Amalekites took when the nation of Israel was trying to get to the promised land. They just, well, we're just gonna flank them. We're just gonna come to the back, pick off the weak, and then ultimately just work our way through it. And we will be the dominant force. And it ticked Yahovah off. And he said, I'm not gonna forget him and I'm gonna blot him out. I'm gonna, I'm gonna completely wipe them out of the entire world. So like write it down, remind Joshua, put it in his ear. I'm not playing about it. And it's the reason that when Samuel went to Saul, that like that, that's that moment when you know it hit the fan, right? Because he was serious about it. You're going in to make war with the Amalekites. Don't leave anything fascinating, like this line that's drawn through history and the way you see these connections to all of this evil that's in the world that is of the devil. It's demonic. We talk about it all the time, this anti-Semitism that comes straight from the pit of hell. That's where it originates. And and it's this idea that Haman said, I want you to kill, destroy, and annihilate from the land. It's almost verbatim what Hitler said. Almost verbatim. It was his whole plan. He was serious about it. Our God is serious about this. Two different mitzvahs, two two different times in the 613 that he reminds them. Obliterate them. Wipe them off the map. Okay, we're going to go back to chapter 21. This is the one that Pastor Paul texts me about. <laughs> because at first reading, you're like, what? What is that? Like, who put this in the Bible and why? Kind of thing. In reality, this is an incredible picture of grace. In- incredible picture of grace. Okay. So um, in chapter 21, let's read 10 through 14. When you go out to war against your enemy and, and the Lord your God gives them into your hand and you take them captive, you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire to take her to be your wife and you bring her home to your house. She shall shave her head and pare her nails and she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured and shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother a full month. After that, you may go into her and, her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants, but you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave since you have humiliated her. This is a text that's used... Um, it's used to proof text a point that God commanded his people 
to mistreat women. It, this, is, this is one of those proof texts where people would go back and say, see, your Bible says that God allowed his people to humiliate women. Now, when you understand the context of Scripture and understand the, the whole, like there's this whole picture that we have to put together, this is a beautiful picture of his grace. So first of all, we have, and I put in here the, the reference for Deuteronomy 7.3. The, the first kind of problem that you have here is that Yahuwah already told them not to intermarry, right? You remember that? Because what happens when the intermarrying happens? You're going you're gonna to take that culture that they're coming out of, and then it's going to start being mixed with what we understand to be God's way of doing life. It, it creates problems. So first of all, he already told them, don't intermarry. But what's happening here is he's talking directly to those who are like that frontline soldier who is out there, the ones that are taken captive or taking those people captive. And he's speaking directly to the fact that you will see someone and you will, become, you will be overcome basically by their physical appearance. And by that physical appearance that you see, you might go, I'm going to marry that one. First of all, you're a soldier. Like, what are you doing? What's the, what's the thought process that you're out there going, I'm marrying that one. Like, in the middle of everything that's going on, that that's where your head is. But first of all, but also there's this commandment like don't, don't do that. Don't bring, don't marry outside of what we're doing here. So there's this, this area of protection that's happening. So then the commandment is bring them in, shave their head, and allow them to mourn for what has happened. Now, the period of mourning, according to Torah, is 30 days. So for 30 days, this person is going to mourn the loss of everything. If at the end of that 30 days, so again, the initial appeal was, that one's beautiful. Well, what if you shave that one's head? Are they still as beautiful for, to you? What if you have to sit and watch them mourn for 30 days? Are they still so beautiful to you? Or at some point, do you start feeling some form of sympathy for them? At some point, you start feeling the level of humanity that is always taught in terms of the civilization that's put together here. You see, it was put in place as a buffer, as a shield to protect both parties. That the, first of all, that the, the one who fell in love at first sight on the battlefield, for whatever reason, for that one, that you're not overtaken by just visual appeal. The word is lust, that you're not driven by lust, that you're not making life decisions based off of lust. So there's, there's protection put in place there. And there's also protection put into place. And see, grace and mercy is being shown to the one that's just been taken captive as well that they're not brought in and forced to marry into something and then ultimately probably not treated very well because they're an outsider. You, like, do you see the level that, of compassion and, and grace that's provided here? And then it says that after that's over, if you decide to send her away, do not sell her into slavery. Like specifically, that, 
because she's endured so much. This is an incredible picture of the gospel. The, the way that you can, live your, you can live your life in such a way in front of other people that they can see who your God is. That's what this commandment was about. Don't you ever let anyone proof text this to say that our God is about mistreating women. Because it's used. It's used in this way a lot. It's not what's shown here. That's not the picture that's shown here. Leviticus 14.8 says, And he who is to be clean shall wash his clothes and shave off all of his hair and bathe himself in water, and he shall be clean. And after that, he may come into the camp, but live outside his tent seven days. So that's just the Levitical law that we covered several weeks back that talked about how you go through this cleansing process. That was a part of this as well. Whether If you're going to bring them in, bring them in the right way. Shave the head, give them different clothes. Don't leave them in the clothes that they were taken captive in. Give them different clothes, clean them, let them have their period of mourning. And then after that, after all of that stuff happens, then you make a decision whether or not you're going to marry them. The, the, the word humiliate them there is oftentimes, um, it's read into that they took advantage of this person, that, that maybe they assaulted this person in a certain way. I'm just trying to be mindful of our room here, but they, that it's, it's taken to, like it's led into people believing that where it says that you humiliated them, that you, that you mistreated them in some way. But we already know the law of marriage. Those things weren't done before marriage. So we, we take the context of Scripture and read that into this, that the humiliation that's talked about is just simply the fact that she had to go through what she went through. So because of that, don't you dare sell her off. You either bring her in and marry her, or you turn her loose and allow her to go. Okay? So uh, that was one that as I read the first time, I was like, oh, I don't want to teach this. <laughs> right? This is the gospel. Like when we talk about how the gospel is, is that common thread that's pulled all through the scriptures, this is one of those places where when, when you take the filters off, you see the gospel in a story like this, in a commandment like this. It's just, just a beautiful picture of the gospel. So and then I, wanna, I want us to also... Um, kind of finish out this portion with talking about the man uh, that hangs on the tree. So in, in Deuteronomy 21, uh, verse 22 and 23, it says this, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. That, that's one, like when we read that particular commandment, that's one that we automatically ties us back to Yeshua, automatically. Because we know, you know, like we, we know Galatians 3.13, you know, but slow down for just a minute. To be cursed of God, um, those 613 laws, there's penalty for that. There's punishment that comes as a as as a fallout of that. That's what that curse is like. But read Galatians 3.13. Just read it to yourself 
really quickly, just quietly in your head, just read Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Don't fly by it. Don't file it away as things that you've heard in church a million times before. Every one of us set in a place to be cursed by God on all 613 accounts. Every one of them. We stand to be cursed of God on every one of those laws. But what Galatians 3.13 says is that he redeemed us from the curse of it. The curse of it. The penalty of it. And, And like here collectively we know we know the importance of those things. We know that those are put there for a reason. But to be able to stand here tonight in front of you not cursed by them? God forbid that I ever get to a place where that's common. That's what happened to me when that link that I gave you, where like you'll open that, depending on what you open that link on, especially like your phone, if you were to open that on your phone, the amount of time it will take you to scroll through 613 laws. And then actually take some time to read some of them. I truly believe that he was very serious when he put every one of those in place. And I also know I'm completely incapable of making it through a day without potentially breaking all 613 of them. To be cursed by God, listen, it would have only taken one of them. One time. Mess up one of them one time and guess where you stand? Cursed of God. Christ redeemed us from the curse. How? How did he redeem us from the curse? By becoming cursed. And then it's a direct tie back. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It was put in place way back here. Hundreds of years before Yeshua would come and become the cursed one. It was, that was put into place. It, it all played out in that way. And then it gives like, don't let them stay there overnight. They had to get the body down. The, the Sabbath was coming and, and we, we start tying all the pieces together. But then in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, for, the se- for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He made him, he became sin for us. I don't even really understand what that means. I think I've struggled with that for the entirety of my, my faith. I don't, I don't even know what it means for him to become sin for me. What does that mean? I can tell you this, it's something that can only happen through supernatural interaction of the God that made everything becoming flesh and coming here. It's the only way it's possible. You could not become sin for me. 
You can be sin for yourself, but you can't be sin for me. You can't take my sin. You've got your own. Does that make sense? He became, so for our sake, he made him to be sin who know, he knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. What in the world does that even mean? How did I become the righteousness of God? First Peter 2, 22 through 24. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Which is what Isaiah said also, right? In his body, he took on our sin he went and put himself on a tree, which was like, it's like the personification of the cursedness that came to him. It's like the, it's, it became, his life became this picture of Deuteronomy 21 being played out in front of people that knew Deuteronomy 21. The, the people who were there that day, that this this man who said he was the Messiah, the one that stood up in the middle of the temple and in the synagogue on the Sabbath that read the, read the prophet and said, today in your hearing, this was fulfilled and just sat down. That one, that they knew that. Like put it in the time and the place. They, they knew that, they heard that and they had gathered. And now that one was becoming the picture of what Yahovah said, this one's cursed because he's being hung on a tree. All of these things kind of factor into this stumbling block that Jesus said he would be. That there were people there that day that said that can't be the one that was promised because he's cursed by my God. That can't be the one that we've been waiting for because he wouldn't be cursed by the one that's sinning, would he? But that's what Torah says. But what we understand is that he took that curse. He wore the curse. He who knew no sin became sin. He wore it. I don't want that to ever become common. And as I studied Torah this week, in a very, very legalistic text, and I don't, I don't use that term legalistic in the way that we think about it in church, but like just legalistic in terms like full of law from 2110 to the end of 25, just jam-packed full of 74 different laws that I'm completely incapable of doing in and of myself. And that I deserve the penalty that comes from not being able to keep them. And, and as, I, as I read through the list, and, and not just that list, but also the, all of the lists that we've all operated under for the entirety of our lives, you've all, been held, you've all been held captive in some way to a list at some point that you've looked at and you've gone, but I can't meet that standard. Whatever it is, whether, whether it's something that you know that you have to give up, but it's really, really hard to things that uh, the weight that other people make you carry because you 
because you wear the name of Christ and they have expectations for you and they set in judgment over you all the time when you don't meet the standard. We've all faced those lists in some way. That's why I don't freak out when I think about Torah. I've been held, I've been held under law for my whole life, just like you. This doesn't freak me out. To not be able to hit the mark doesn't freak me out. It doesn't scare me. You can tell me. You can sit in front of me today and tell me, yeah, you're required to do all of those things. I'm not going to bat an eye at it. Because I have a Savior, and the, and the Scriptures say that He came and he, he became sin, and He wore our sin, and He became the curse so that we might become the righteousness of God because we couldn't become the righteousness of God any other way, not even by keeping the Torah. That's not the way it ever worked. Make a sacrifice. Well, look, that's what Saul wanted to do. Just wasn't gonna do it the right way. We do the same things all the time. But the penalty, the condemnation that comes from not being able to hit the standard of the list, that's the thing that Yeshua fixed. That's the reason I'm not scared of it. It doesn't bother me. It bothers other people. It makes other people uncomfortable around me. We've talked about this. I I know it does. It doesn't bother me. And even if I I mess it up, I'm okay because I have Jesus. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to repent and I'm going to ask him to fix it. I'm going to ask him to continue to smooth out the rough parts. I'm going to ask him to, to do that work in my heart that, guess what? He's the only one that's capable of doing it anyway. I'm going to ask him to continue to do that. I'm going to repent. I'm going to repent some more. And I'm going to ask him to give me another day tomorrow. Why? So that I can repent more. I'm going to constantly throw myself at his feet, at his mercy, asking him to Apply his blood and his grace to all of those areas that I continue to mess up. And it is my only hope. And it it is also the only hope that I need. I don't need anything else. He hung on a tree and became, he became the curse. He wore the curse. He wore the sin so that I wouldn't have to, and so that I could be looked at as the righteousness of God. Are you kidding me? Do y'all know me? (laughs) How does that that happen? How does that that even work? I'm just going to trust him. I'm going to put all of my faith in that. Every ounce of faith that I can muster on any given day, I'm putting it in that. It's a lot of law. I know that. I don't know if it's 613. There's all kinds of people that debate a lot of different ways on what that number is. It doesn't matter. I can't meet, I can't meet one of them. It could have been one law, and I would have figured out a way to mess it up. One, six, thirteen, ten thousand. Huh? Yeah. He provided. He provided the sacrifice. He provided the lamb. The spotless one. The one that descended, that came, that put on flesh. It always pointed people back to this hope. 
apart from that, we don't have anything, guys. We're going to miss the mark. And and probably the harder we work at it, the more we're going to mess it up. It's kind of our nature for now. He's going to fix our nature also.